Hi, and welcome to Northampton Bible Church's podcast. We are glad that you're here today. If you'd like to learn more about Northampton Bible Church, you can check us out at nbchurchcf.org. You can also interact with us on social media at nbchurchcf. And now, here's today's message. Well, we are uh, in the Gospel of John. If you have a Bible, I encourage you to turn to the Gospel of John. If you don't know where John is, uh, go to the center-ish and keep going right a little bit, and then you'll get to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and you'll get to John. How many of you remember reading Rainbow? All right, good. Butterfly in the sky. I can go twice this. I'm not going to sing it. It's in a book, you know. But anyway, LeVar Burton, who was also... Whoever this guy, I've never watched, sorry, Scott, I never watched The Next Generation or any other, I've watched old school Star Trek, but LeVar Burton, wasn't he the guy with the, whatever that thing was? Uh, LeVar Burton would recount a story in Reading Rainbow, and then he would kind of like talk through it, and then he would say this phrase, but you don't have to take my word for it. I don't know if you remember that or not. Always. And it would maybe cut to somebody else talking about the book or talking about this idea or whatever it was. And uh, what he's saying is that, you know, you don't have to believe me, but what I'm saying is true. But if you don't believe me, or even if you do, but you want to hear something else, uh, don't, you don't have to take my word for it. If you want proof, then listen to this. And it hit me this week, as I'm, and I'm still in John chapter 1, but it hit me personally this week. That what I do on a Sunday morning is try to bring back thousands of years, and in this case, what we're talking about 2,000 years ago, try to bring it to the present and try to tell you who Jesus is and what Jesus has done and what God has done for us. That I'm, I'm kind of coming along and trying to convince you of God's love story for you. And that all that God did, He did for you. And week after week, Message after message, study after study, life group after life group, to try to bring this message from 2,000 years ago to the present. That Jesus is the Messiah. That Jesus is God. That you can be born again. That you can be made new in Christ. That that's a message from 2,000 years ago that here I'm bringing, and not just me, but many teachers and all those people, but this thought about me in this week of... Because some of you have jobs that you do things that are like it's relevant and it's in the moment and not that Jesus isn't relevant, but it's in the moment and you're doing this thing and like here's this new technology and here I am saying here's this old technology that is very relevant to today. That what happened 2,000 years ago has total relevance to our lives today. And it's as if I'm saying, but you don't have to take my word for it. Let me tell you about John, the disciple, who 60 years removed from the events that he's writing about, began to see in the people that they were starting to fall away, that false teaching was coming in. And he's like, guys, don't you remember? And we looked at John chapter 20, verse 31, where we see that John is writing so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life. 
And it says, this week it's as if uh, John is saying, you know, you guys have seen these things. You've experienced these things. And even if you hadn't seen them or experienced them firsthand, no doubt, because he's writing to people that are in that time, would say that you probably have heard stories from your grandma or your uncle or somebody that you respect, that this is not a legend, this is not a fable, that this happened. And this week, it's as if John, the disciple, is saying, (laughs) but you don't have to take my word for it. Listen to John, the baptizer. Let him tell you the conclusion that he came to. And no doubt, John, the baptizer, and I got to keep going back because we have two Johns here. John, the disciple who wrote the letter, wrote the book, and then we have John, the baptizer, who's the forerunner we'll talk about in a minute. But John is writing so that you may believe, and he says, now listen, if you don't believe me, or no, no, this is true, but I also want you to listen to this. Just don't take my word for it. Listen to what John the baptizer has to say. And I'm calling him John the baptizer because I don't want you to get confused in thinking that John was the first Baptist. It's not a denominational thing. Uh, He was baptizing, and we'll talk about that. But he was the cousin of Jesus. And he was conceived under supernatural means that, that uh, John's mother and was barren and God opened up her womb and, and God spoke these words to uh, John's dad that, he, that this baby would be like the prophet Elijah. And he said these words, God said these words to, to uh, John's dad. He says, and he, John, will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. That John was coming to prepare the way for the Messiah, the long-awaited Messiah, the one who would come to save them, to make everything right. These are the things that we've been talking about these last number of weeks. These are the things that John has been talking about and, and leading us to. That John will come and turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the, of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And so what John, John comes to prepare the way for the Messiah, he comes to prepare the way for his cousin, but I don't, in that moment, I don't know that John, I don't think that John knew who Jesus really was. Because they met pre-birth. Remember where the baby did like a somersault inside mom? And while John is a key figure, John the baptizer is a key figure in all the Gospels, only here do we hear these words. And these are the words that we're going to park at all morning because they're significant, because they carry weight, because they're things that we need to understand as we follow Jesus. If you look at John 1, verse 29, I'll put it on the screen there. Uh, So John, the baptizer, the next day he, John, saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And some of you might gloss over that. Some of you might say, oh yeah, I think I, think I understand. So by the end of today, by the end of this morning, you will be more educated on what that means than hopefully maybe ever before. And the significance of that phrase, because not only does he say it there, if you look down a little bit further in verse 36, he says, he looked and at Jesus and he, and, uh, as he walked by and he said, behold, the Lamb of God. This phrase, the Lamb of God, is only used twice in Scripture. And they're right here. And it's by John. However, this, this idea 
is depicted through all of Scripture, through the Old Testament, through the New Testament, that John the disciple shares that John the baptizer says some pretty profound things about this Jesus, about this Messiah, about this one who's come. And the things that he says, this phrase has deep roots and it has deep meaning. And it's, it's a very profound thing that I believe gets lost on us. We, if I were to take a quiz of all of you, you'd be like, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I kind of, I think I do. Maybe it has something to do with this, maybe, but I'm not sure. But I'm going to point you to a number of verses today. So make sure that you're buckled in. <laughs> because we're going to look at a number of things that I hope will begin to paint a picture for you of what it really means that Jesus is the Lamb of God and the significance that that has for our lives. And try to see that the Old and the New Testament really are one story coming together. A story of God's love for us, a story of God's redemption, a story of God's rescue, a story of God's love woven through the pages of Scripture, woven through the Old Testament, pointing to the New Testament, to Christ who would come. And so we've seen in John chapter 1 that John, the disciple, makes this case that Jesus is God, that Jesus is the Word, that Jesus is the preexistent One. And that not only is He God, but He's fully human, and He's come to give you life, and He's come to give me life. And that's the case that John is building. And then he shifts to John the baptizer. And you hear these words, and these are significant of John, that he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Look at verse 29 of chapter 1. We just looked at it, but let's read it. The next day, he, John the baptizer, saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. That we didn't read the preceding verses. I would encourage you to read those verses. As I said when we first started this, we're not going to read every single verse. Hopefully you do. Uh, but we're going to hit on these things and understand uh, that, that they were questioning, the religious leaders were questioning, John, who are you? Are you Elijah? Like, who are you coming and doing what you're doing? And he just kept pointing them to Jesus. Verse 31, I did not myself know him, but for this purpose I came, baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. That John is saying that my purpose here is to point you to Jesus, point you to the Messiah, point you to the Christ. Jesus, uh, John, as we said, didn't really even know that Jesus was who he was until God revealed that to him. Look at verse 32. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and I bore witness that this is the Son of God. And some of you may have read through John before and like, okay, yeah, that's really good. But think about the significance that, again, you don't have to take my word for it. Listen to John the disciple. John the disciple saying, you don't have to take my word for it. Listen to John the baptizer who was there, the forerunner of Jesus, the one that was sent to make the way to prepare God's people for the Messiah to come. And John's conclusion is what? Oops, I'm getting all out of whack over there. John's conclusion Not only this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, but He is the Son of God. These are powerful, powerful words. Words that I hope that we can unpack a little bit. Really, this is important that we understand this whole thing. This phrase has significance because this account, these these verses that we just read are are not about John the baptizer, they're about Jesus. 
And if you begin to see that perspective that John is pointing, even us, to Jesus, there's significance in what he says. Because the Lamb of God in this context, and the Lamb of God in, in all of Scripture, really talks and teaches us about the redemptive story. That this is God's idea that we were separated from Him. And you look back at Genesis 3, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, but that we were separated from God because of sin. But God knew ahead of time. And God had this plan in motion that God is the one that orchestrated all of this because God loves you and God loves me. And we begin to see glimpses in the Old Testament pointing to the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That although that phrase is not found in the Old Testament, we see allusions to it. And guess what we're going to do this morning? We're going to look at those. You got it. I know you're all here. I'm with you. Good. Let me give it to you. Number, number A, the almost sacrifice of Isaac. How, how would you feel if, uh, if you were to get an email or maybe a voicemail or maybe just the voice of God and say, hey, I, I want you to take your son and I want you to put him down. I want you to kill him. I probably would have filed that email as spam, right? Like junk mail, or at least question, like, okay, is this, is this that really you got, or is that somebody else? But I want you to see that that's what, what Abraham did. He said, God said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering. And when God says, Abraham, Abraham says, here I am. The Abraham was a man of faith. And he was justified by his faith. We need to know that God had promised Abraham. And so if you don't know this story, I'm going to fill you in. We're going to look at, at four different things. You'll see in your study guide there, four different times where we see the Lamb of God pictured, and it's really picturing Jesus and what Jesus were, was going to do and would do and has done for us. That God had promised Abraham a child. And Abraham and his wife were really not at childbearing years. They were well beyond that. And it was kind of like, mm, I don't know. But God says, I promise you that I'm going to provide, I'm going to give you a child, and, and I'm going to make from you a people that is more numerous than the sand and the seashore. And then what we see is that God says, now I want you to take this promised child, this child of a promise, and I want you to put it to death. God says, I want you to kill him. And it doesn't make sense. I mean, often things happen in our lives where we're like, yeah, that doesn't make sense. <laughs> I don't get it. Why would God even do that? But I want you to see a glimpse of the faith of Abraham in, in Hebrews chapter 11. You may have not seen this before, but I want you to see his faith shine through. The writer of Hebrews says that even Abraham considered that God was able even to raise his son Isaac from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. That Abraham's faith was such that, okay, God, I'm going to do what you say because you've given me this child as a promise, and I'm going to trust in your promise, and I'm going to do what you say. And even if I put this child to death, I know that you'll raise it. You can raise him again, and you're, you're God. It's important to understand that other religions in that region practice child sacrifice, and I want to believe that they were probably also in a pandemic as well. <laughs> that was supposed to be a joke that was just going to hit so hard, and people were going to be like, man, that is so funny. Because Never mind. If you don't have kids in a pandemic, I guess it doesn't really ring true, but no more jokes. No more jokes. 
Anyway, <laughs> you can just laugh just to make me feel better. I don't know what's going on. Thank you. Thank you. Can we get a laugh track? Just kidding. Just kidding. These other religions require child sacrifice. And we know that God forbids child sacrifice. And so don't get hung up on the command, I want you to kill your son. Uh, it's not about child sacrifice. Really what it is is about God undermining that idea. And the cool thing is, this is a foreshadow, this is a foretelling of what Jesus really did and, and what he's saying to, to Abraham and what he's saying to us is, I don't expect you to give me your son. I'm going to give you mine. This foreshadow, this substitutionary sacrifice that this one who stands in the place of another. And we see this, if you know the story, and this is part of your digging deeper homework, that to go back and look at Genesis 22 and see what God did, and we're going to talk about it right now, and I'm going to give you, like, spoiler alert, it's coming. But what you have is Abraham and Isaac go to this mountain, and there's other people with them, and he says to the guys with them, he says, I and the son, my son, we're going to go onto the mountain, and we're going to worship the Lord, and we will come back. I don't know that I have enough faith to say that in that situation. <laughs> and then what you have is that Isaac and Abraham like, carrying the, the fire and the, and the wood and, and Isaac, and they're walking up the mountain, and then you have this, uh, his son say, uh, Hey, Dad, <laughs> I know we're going up to this mountain to offer a sacrifice, and I see the fire, and I see the wood. <laughs> Do we forget something? Abraham says that God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. And so they went on together. Again, I don't know that I would have that kind of faith, but Abraham believed that God would provide and provide the lamb, the substitutionary sacrifice that the Lord would provide it. And that's exactly what we find that he did is that what you find is that just at the last moment when Abraham uh, is ready to put his son to death, God speaks and he says, hey, Abraham. And I believe that maybe Abraham answered God maybe quicker than he ever answered. Hey, here I am. <laughs> yeah. And they, caught, they saw a ram caught by its horns in a thicket and, and Abraham took that substitutionary sacrifice and sacrificed that, that ram in place of his son. And it begins to be a picture, an echo of, of what God has done for us in Christ. Have you ever seen uh, Dead Poet Society? It's not a joke. I'll, I mean, it's really a good story here. But how uh, Mr. Keating takes his class at the very beginning of the movie, takes him out to look at all these pictures of, of just older people that have gone, that are no doubt dead, and he said they're food for worms kind of thing. Like, they're They're gone. But yet at, they were your age at one time and, and they had dreams just like you did. And, and now if they could call out to you, they would tell you what? Carpe diem. Seize the day, boys. And I hear that, not the carpe diem, but I hear that, that John is looking at these events. And as we look at Genesis 22, and as we look at the next ones, what I hear is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world whispering and echoing back in time as we look at Genesis 22 and as we look at the next ones that, that God through John is saying, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is what Jesus has done for you. And this is what Jesus has done for me. 
The next one is the Passover. Some of you might say, this one I had. (laughs) I got this one. And if you know the Passover, that the people of God were in Egypt, and there were plagues that God was bringing upon Egypt so that his people would be delivered. And if you've watched the movie, (laughs) you know what's coming. But the last plague was the firstborn child will be put to death. But God provided that the people that would take an unblemished lamb and put its blood on the doorposts, the angel of death would pass over. And that's exactly what happened, is that they did this and they were obedient, and the angel passed over. And likewise, Jesus... You put this together already because you're smart. Jesus is the Passover lamb, the perfect lamb, not the lamb given once and then another lamb given after that, another lamb given after that, but he is the perfect, spotless, spotless, unblemished, ultimate sacrifice who conquered death forever. And everyone who puts their faith in this lamb can be forgiven, and everybody who puts their faith in this lamb can be free, and this lamb being Jesus. That just as in that one moment they were able to escape death, Jesus has conquered death for us. And we see these familiar words to some of you, maybe all of you, that John 3.16, Jesus says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Because of the sacrifice of Jesus, because of the perfect sacrifice, because of the blood of the Lamb, I can be forgiven. And I can be free, and you can be forgiven, and you can be free. And that's how dead people, spiritually dead people, can be made alive as in Christ. And the Passover, it's as if John is saying, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That as I look at that, at that account, I look at it through the lens of who, what Jesus has done, and I begin to see that what John is saying shouts loudly to our presence that this is the Lamb of God. And immediately, when, he, when John the baptizer said these things, if I'm, a, if I'm an Israelite, if I'm one of the Jews that are standing there, I kind of get a picture of like, I know, what? what? Huh, wait a minute, I know what you're saying. This? This is like the Passover? This? This guy? Yeah. He is. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then we see as we move continue to move through the Old Testament, the sacrificial system. After the Passover, God rescues his people from Egypt, and now they're uh, on their way to the promised land and brings them into the promised land. And on the way, he gives them the law, which really gives them this uh, sacrificial system, uh, many, many laws, and, uh, but there are sacrifices that would be made for the atonement of sin. And, and the word atone means to cover in every offering, there was, there was something to do with blood. And we'll talk about that, why that's the case. But there was, whether they, they take the blood and they sprinkle it around the altar, on the sides of the altar, on the altar, that blood was used for forgiveness. Because Leviticus says, for the, law, the life of every creature is in its blood, that its blood is its life. The fact that you have the blood of an animal means that you had to sacrifice that animal to get that blood, that there was a sacrifice that was made, and that sacrifice would cover the sin and would wash it clean. 
It atoned for that sin. It covered the sin. This is maybe a familiar verse to some of you, Hebrews 9.22. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And this is the part that you probably know. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Without a sacrifice being made, without some substitutionary sacrifice being made in the place of someone, there is no forgiveness. And this is significant. Because all of these things begin to foreshadow, begin to show you that the lamb is significant. That I would come and I would, uh, I would bring my, my sacrifice and I would put my hand on that animal and the, the animal would be put to death, not because they were against animals, but there was, there was a sacrifice that needed to be made to cover my sin. And that sacrifice would atone, it would cover my sin, but it would be for a time. It wouldn't be forever and ever. It would be until the next time I need to do it. There was a day called the Day of Atonement that we would come together and sacrifices would be made, that the the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and put blood on the altar, on the mercy seat, uh, would be this big deal, and so that that my sin would be covered. It would be a a once-a-year thing, but then there was also sacrifices that were made throughout the year, that if I wronged a brother, if something happened, if this happened, I had to do this so I could make these things right. But what we see in Christ is the perfect sacrifice, the perfect lamb, once and for all, the blood that was shed. That's why we, if you're new to church, you're like, the beautiful is the blood. The blood, the, what are we talking about? That that's where it comes from, and that's what it means. Because Jesus was sacrificed, because his blood was shed, I can be, my sin can be atoned for, my sin can be covered, that I can be forgiven, and I can be free. And so what you see in the sacrificial system is this, this foreshadow of what Jesus would be for all of us. That's why it's so significant that John would say, he didn't say, hey, here comes this cool guy. Here comes the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Immediately, if I'm a a Jew standing there, I know exactly what he's talking about. We've been waiting for this guy. We've been waiting for the Messiah. He's here. Some verses from Hebrews chapter 7. Jesus has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily for his own, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. That Jesus is our great high priest. Jesus is the lamb who was slain. Hebrews 9 says that he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of blood of goats or calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Because what you see in the Day of Atonement, what you see in that sacrificial system was a sacrifice upon sacrifice upon sacrifice upon sacrifice, foreshadowing the one that would come, but it was never good enough. It was never once and for all. It was once for a time until the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is our purification offering, that his blood cleanses us. 1 Peter 1, knowing that you were ransomed from your futile ways, inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. And again, it's as if John is whispering through time as we look back at the sacrificial system that this is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is significant, that this is a big deal. That the Old Testament's pointing to the one that would come. The Old Testament is pointing to Jesus. 
And finally, the suffering servant. The books of the prophets, what you see, prophets are, are, are foretelling Jesus, would, the Messiah, would come as a victorious warrior, that Jesus wasn't uh, necessarily the warrior they were looking for. The one that they were anticipating was going to come and overthrow the government and make everything right. But Jesus came as a servant. <laughs> Jesus came as a humble servant, a gentle king. And he didn't lead revolutions to overthrow the government. What he did was he washed his disciples' feet. Because Jesus is part of an upside-down kingdom. Jesus, if you think about the kingdom as opposed to the kingdom of God, as opposed to the kingdom of this world, that Jesus' kingdom is a kingdom that's upside-down compared to anything that we know. Because Jesus says, if you want to be first, guess what? You need to be last. That doesn't make sense. That's what you need to do. You need to serve one another. He healed the sick. He, he preached and he lived selfless love. He didn't come riding in on a horse like going after the king. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. He alone went into war and the battleground was the cross. A cross that would be, should have been yours, that should have been mine. The payment that should have been made by us was made by him. A cross where victory was won, and this doesn't make any sense, but victory was won when he died. If you and I were looking for the Messiah, I don't think that we would look at Jesus. But that is who John is pointing us to, and that is who came to save us. And the resurrection victory came when Jesus rose again on the third day that we might believe. Prophet Isaiah describes in Isaiah 53 a Messiah who is a suffering servant, who is a lamb that was led to slaughter, was killed that we might have life. Look at, I didn't forgot to give you that. There's that. Isaiah 53, 6 and 7 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You think about all those pronouns. <laughs> what Isaiah is saying is, all of us are lost. All of us, because of our sin, are separated from God. And what God has done in the suffering servant, what God has done in the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, what God has done is laid our sin, our iniquity on him. Isaiah goes on, he says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that was led to slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. That Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is the suffering servant. Jesus is the revolutionary that led a revolution, that led a war that was fought at the cross. And that victory was not found in him overthrowing the government. Victory was found in his death and resurrection. And it's as if John is whispering to us as we look at the suffering servant, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But these words are words that should echo in our minds and in our hearts. John continues to say, 
And so when John the baptizer declares that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the things that he's referencing, the weight that it carries, what he is saying is this is, this is the substitutionary sacrifice. This is the Passover Lamb. This is the, the for, what was foreshadowed in the sacrifices. This is the suffering servant. This is the Messiah. This is the Savior. This is the Lamb of God. And if nothing else, may it cause you to, number one, fall in love with the Word of God even more, to understand that God knows what He's doing. It's not accidental, like, oh, ooh, better fix, fix this or right. That even from eternity past, God had a plan. And I want you to, to say that if you have been rescued from death to life, if you've been made alive in Christ, you have a story to tell. Because what we have is that John the baptizer was sent as a messenger for God, and you have John the disciple who was sent as a messenger for God. And if you are trusting in Christ for the forgiveness of your sin, if you are trusting him as your Savior and as your Lord, guess what? You are a messenger for God. That you and I have the privilege to speak a story, not just a story, not just a narrative, to speak the fact of what happened 2,000 years ago and bring it in to today that's very relevant for people in their lives today and say, this is the hope that we have. This is our only hope. We have a privilege to be able to share the gospel, and this is the last thing on your notes, that the gospel is not just... Good news. <laughs> it's the best news. Ever. Isn't that the truth? And I think sometimes we can get so comfortable in church that we know when to fill out the lines and we know how to stand up and, and sing songs and we talked about the gospel and we talk about Jesus being the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and we can say all these things and we can fill all the blanks. But what significance does that have for your life? It's not a story to be kept. It's a story to be told. It's a story to be lived. And all of us who are trusting in Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, we need to love God. We need to love others. We need to make disciples. There's no other mission. <laughs> There's no other like, yeah, you know, I'm not really getting no. I was in a real life discipleship group this past Wednesday and we were going around and we were sharing our stories of how God, you know, how, how we came to know Christ, how we followed him as Savior and get around to one guy. And he's like, oh, I don't really have much of a story. You know, I kind of just basically, you know, it's kind of my story. Like I, I followed Jesus at a young age and I kind of grew up following Jesus and I had up my ups and downs, but I was, I was a Christ follower through all my life. And, and I stopped him. <laughs> he's older than me. I'm like, no, 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 no. Listen. <laughs> If you have been rescued from death to life, it doesn't mean that you have to have the story of like, I did drugs for 42 years, and I did this, and then I wrote them. It doesn't matter. <laughs> if you've been rescued from death to life by the blood of the Lamb, by faith in Christ alone, you have a story to tell. I have a story to tell. I don't need to be flashy and get up on stage and be like, ah, here's my story. And sometimes we glorify that, don't we? Like, this is how bad I was. And we make very little of what Christ has done. And may we not get that out of whack. Because the reality is we were all drug takers, 
drink drinkers, uh, sinners. Can we say that? <laughs> we were all sinners. At the worst degree, the worst, all of us. And we're spiritually dead until Christ. Because it's not about being good. It's not about being made into a good person. It's about being brought from death to life. And that's a story that we have to tell. And so my question to you today as we close is, are you following Jesus? Are you trusting in the blood of the Lamb? Have you given your life to Christ? Are you trusting Him as Savior? And are you following Him as Lord? And there should be a point in your life where you would say, and I often think of it like a marriage where I, I, I don't just, because I've talked to people that say, well, it just kind of happens. I went to church and I just kind of understood what it means to follow Jesus and it happened. That may be the case, but that's not how I understand it, and I would just encourage you. I mean, it's, it's not like if I'm hanging out with my, my, my now wife but before we were married, and we're kind of just like sitting on a bench somewhere, and then I really love her, and she really loves me, and I look at her, and she looks at me, and we're like, are we married? Yeah, we're married. Okay. But there's a point where I make a commitment, where I surrender all, where I, I really understand that I'm a sinner. And I really understand that I can't do anything to, I can't save myself. It's only because of what Christ has done. And it's my, my receiving of that forgiveness that I can be clean, that I can be forgiven. And really, it's walking that out as proof, as evidence. I don't do good works so that I can be saved, but I do works so that as evidence of, of course I've been saved. Look what God has done. Nothing that I have done. So have you made that decision? That's the, the most important decision. It's not just the good news. It's the best news. Jesus isn't, isn't one of many choices and figure out which one kind of fits your lifestyle so you can keep living how you want to live and, and then you'll maybe get to heaven one day, but that you would surrender your life, period. And the other question is, are you that voice for God? Are you, if you're following Jesus, do people know it? May we share the gospel. May we share the best news. And if we have to, may we use words. <laughs> are we directing people to Jesus? Are we directing them to the Lamb? Or are we directing them away? Because if they say, but if that's what it means to follow Jesus, I don't want, to, I don't want anything to do with that. That we point, just like John, we, you, me, who are Christ followers, we point to Jesus and say, there he is, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And if you don't believe me, you don't have to take my word for it. You can trust in the word of God that we point to every day, every week, and trust that, that is, this is the truth. And may we walk in it this week.